The title of this session is Why Church Planting is Not Intuitive. Why Church Planting is Not Intuitive. Missionaries came to Taiwan in 1865. The first one was James Maxwell from the Presbyterian Church of England. And over the next 150 years, many missionaries came and planted churches on this little island country. And today, there are about 5,000 churches um, locally. We have seminaries, multiple Bible translations, Christian resources, uh, radio stations, TV stations. We owe our lives in Christ to these early pioneers and those who follow their steps. They planted solid Bible-based churches in Taiwan. But the one thing that they did not do well was to impart a heart for foreign missions. This is something that actually later missionaries apologized for, apologizing on behalf of the earlier missionaries for dropping the ball on this. And this is significant because this is significant because even today there are quite a few inward-looking churches in Taiwan where the Great Commission, where foreign missions is not the priority, where the status quo is the norm. So I know firsthand the damage done by a missiology that does not seek to reproduce and expand and multiply. Radius Asia is seeking to be part of the solution for this. And I know that Radius sometimes gets accused of for when it comes to church planting, you guys just want to go slow. And I want to simply say that that is not true. We aim to train young men and women who will go to the nations and plant churches that will expand and multiply. The last thing we want to do is to repeat past mistakes made by early missionaries and plant inward-looking churches. We, too, desire to plant churches who will make disciples that make disciples that make disciples. But at the, at the same time, we got to know that church planting amongst the unreached is difficult. Missionaries will need to go through long seasons of high-stress living. Your marriage will be tested. Your parenting will be tested. Missionaries will have to learn multiple languages, sometimes two, in order to properly and fully communicate the gospel to the unreached. And when we work amongst the Muslims, the, the Hindu, the Buddhist, the animistic people, we're dealing with often conflicting an opposing war view that we need to get a deep understanding for before the gospel presentation. And after, and, and, and all that I just said, that's just, that's just, be, that's before the gospel presentation. But what happens after we give them the gospel and the church is born? Much work is needed in the task of nurturing, shepherding, teaching, training, fending off syncretism and heresy, and ensure the church is standing on the gospel of grace. The process of church planting is long and hard. And naturally, this question gets asked, well, is there any way we could speed up the process? How fast can church planting go? Or how fast should church planting go? And if you look at the mission landscape today, the answer usually is we can go as fast as possible. We hear these words all the time, speed, rapidity, catalyst, movement, momentum. There is so much emphasis on speed today that speed itself, how fast you can plant churches has become the measurement for success. Church planting movements or CPM has become the normative mindset. Do not go and just plant one church. The goal is to start a movement. A leading missiologist defines a CPM, a church planting movement, as having at least 100 churches, three generations deep, that have occurred within two years. A Taiwanese pastor a while back asked me, and, and he pastors one of the bigger churches here on the island, about 10,000 people big. And uh, he asked me, hey, Wayne, I got to ask you something. I got to ask you something. I planted about 20 churches in the last 20-something years, and I'm getting accused of going too fast. But I'm hearing all these missionaries that planted hundreds of churches a month and thousands of churches in, in just a few years. 
um, what's going on on the mission field and what do they mean by church movement in numbers that is the pervasive wind in the mission field today and almost without exception all these church planting movements use one single method of church planting disciple making movements or dmm we're often told through dmm disciple making movement god is doing a new thing in the 21st century Church planting amongst an unreached people group with an unknown language, a culture, and a totally different worldview is supposed to be fast and easy and automatic. The word simple keeps on popping up. Quote, by starting a discipleship-making movement, you could shift from impacting hundreds of people to impacting thousands or tens of thousands within just a few years. A lot of times we read, don't overcomplicate it. Church planting is supposed to be simple. The goal is always to start a massive movement. Imagine if the primary goal of a seminary is to teach future pastors that it is wrong to start one, to plan one faithful, multiplying, Bible-based church That's the wrong goal. The goal is to start a movement of hundreds and thousands of churches. What would our theological education look like? Anything, anything less than a movement often is claimed, um, is perceived as not catching God's, God's heart for this generation. This is a quote from a major proponent of church planning movement. And he's using the illustration of a race to describe the speed of church planting in a matter of weeks and months. Speaking to missionaries trying to start movements, and I quote, crossing each new hurdle should require less time, not more time. The race should accelerate. Otherwise, spiritual momentum is not at work. If the race, if the speed of church planting does not accelerate, it is said spiritual momentum is not at work. I also saw a PowerPoint presentation a while back on the church planting movement that's happening in Asia. And um, this slide had two sets of numbers put um, side by side, presented two sets of numbers side by side. And on one side, it says seven years 20 Christians, one church. And on the other side, it says 200 churches, over 1,500 baptized in the span of one month. And on each side, in bolded letters, on this side, it says man's way. And on the other side, it says God's way. Guys, I'm not arguing for slow. I'm not even saying a church that stays stagnant for seven years is preferable or it is to be commended. I'm not arguing for a church with an organ that never multiplies. Trust me, I am seeing in my own country just the aftermath of a vision without expansion and multiplying. But what's happening in the larger mission landscape today should concern you. Future missionaries, pastors, mobilizers, supporters, intercessors, the need for speed, this premise that church planting should be fast, easy, and automatic, the pragmatism of numbers. If there is numerical growth, then it must be of God. All these trends should be concerning to you. And it should concern you not because we want to settle a disagreement on missiology, but because we are talking about the church. And the church is the bride of Jesus. Church is the one institution that God, chosen by God to display his manifold wisdom to the nations in Ephesians 3. The church is the pillar and bulwark of truth in 1 Timothy 3. Therefore, how we plant a church matters. What we call a church matters, how we teach a church matters, and how we disciple a church matters. 
So my premise for my session is simple. Church planting is not intuitive. It is not automatic or nor you know, is not automatic nor can we get a one size fit all method to make it happen. So I, I want to identify three areas of weakness in the current missions um, missiology trends, the current mindset of let's go as fast as possible. Uh, I want to identify three areas of weakness and offer some thoughts. The first weakness of the current missiology, um, missionary practice, um, church planting movements, discipleship making movements is the absence of teaching by the missionaries, the absence of teaching by the missionaries. In fact, these methods directly discourage missionaries from teaching. This is a quote from a major church planting movement proponent. And he says, when working with lost people, we have to avoid falling into the role of explaining the scripture. If we do, we become the authority rather than allowing the scripture to be the authority. Another quote from somebody else, in the context of disciple-making movements, we have seen that the best tool to, reach to teach obedience is discovery Bible study. And he says, do not teach or preach. Instead, facilitate discovery and obedience. When people are simply exposed to the scriptures, God will reveal the truth to them. So how do we plan churches? The current trends say missionaries do not teach do not preach, avoid the role of explaining the scriptures. Missionaries need to avoid being a professional. Step back, facilitate, let the unsaved discover the truth for themselves. I want to say right away that, that, that there is much danger when a missionary takes and retains the role of the main teacher for the entire duration of the work, and it is a costly mistake that many missionaries have made in the past. And yes, I wholeheartedly agree that the authority should lie in the scriptures and not on the missionary. But the issue here is this, how do we get to that point? How do we raise an infant church to the point where they could get spiritual food out of God's words themselves? And can we plan such church can we do effective church planting without active teaching from the missionaries? One of the worst labels that you could slap on a missionary is the accusation of you are being paternalistic. The accusation of paternalism brings back the colonial past from the West and nobody wants that label. The label quickly brings up the image of a traditional church on Main Street America where a professional pastor, he does all the preaching, he does all the teaching, he makes all the decisions, and all the members just simply sit complacent and enjoying what the pastor does. That is not a healthy church. It's not a healthy church in the United States, and it is not a healthy church anywhere else on the mission field. I appreciate the heart of Western missionaries not wanting to be paternalistic, not wanting to repeat past mistakes. But when I see the current method of don't teach, don't preach, just, just coach and facilitate, I'm afraid the pendulum has swung way too far to the other side. Let me say this out loud to my Western brothers and sisters. Do not be afraid to teach and preach courageously wear the label of paternalism even for season because the Bible demands it. Because the Bible demands that we as gospel messengers that we would teach and preach. In Acts 19.8, this is a descriptive passage of Paul's ministry. And Paul entered the synagogue and for three months he spoke boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. In Acts 18, 11, so Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. In later chapter, Paul spent two years in the city of Ephesus. 
the Apostle Paul was engaged in active and authoritative teaching. And Paul writes in Romans 6, 6, 17, For thanks be to God that though you used to be slave to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. There is a pattern of teaching that claimed the allegiance of believers. In Romans 16, 17, in Paul's final remarks to the church in Rome, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrines that you have been taught. Avoid them. So how do we deal with obstacles and divisions in the church? Well, you put them next to the set of doctrines that you have been taught. Teaching is important. In the pastoral letters, still relevant a manual for church planning in the 21st century, Paul said to Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to, read, to preaching, and to teaching. As the gospel message expanded from Jerusalem to the Gentile, we see again and again in the book of Acts that the apostles engaged in ministry where they actively taught and preached. Guys, I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, when, I, when, when I'm talking about this weakness, this absence of teaching, I'm not talking about a few missionaries that decide to take a weekend off and not preach. I'm talking, this is the most common way of missionary training now. New missionaries have been trained not to teach, not to be the main teacher, but simply give them God's word, facilitate discussion, let them discover the truth for themselves. Guys, the danger of perpetual paternalism is real. It is real, and we, let's not repeat it. But there's a season where you, as a missionary, you are the father to the new believers, where you do take responsibility for their care and their protection. And that season is not only healthy or wise, it is necessary if the church is ever going to reach maturity. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1, Paul said to the Corinthian believers, But I, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. But even now, you're not yet ready. The Corinthian church was not ready to self-discover truth. They did not need a facilitator. They needed a teacher, or dare I say, a father-like figure. Paul called Timothy a spiritual son, and he instructed Timothy. Paul did not tell Timothy to self-discover how to pastor a church. Infants need milk to be fed to them and new Christians need truth to be taught to them. Saying that new believers do not need teaching, but instead we should let them discover truths for themselves is bad parenting at best and child abuse at worst. Our family moved to a little volcanic island in the South Pacific Ocean in 2009. And in 2012, after four years of language and culture study, we were finally able to present the gospel to, um, to this unreached people groups. So after three months of daily teaching from creation to Christ, a group of about 20 people came to faith initially. That was the first group of believers in this people group. Um, and, we were, and we were overjoyed at their newfound faith uh, in Jesus Christ as the only way to be reconciled to God. We were excited and elated, you know, to see the fruit of our labor on that day. Well, the next day we woke up and found out that there was a boy, there was a bunch of young men running around our island and uh, rejoicing and proclaiming and said, we have heard the best news ever. This guy, Jesus, died on the cross for our sins. 
He paid for my sins yesterday, he paid for my sins today, and he paid for my sins tomorrow. This means that we could do whatever junk we want. This is the best news ever. We quickly gather those boys and we open the Bible and we talk and explain to them the meaning of salvation. It is not a license to sin. Those young men on that day, they were not able to discover the truth for themselves. So for the next two years, you know, we, the missionaries, we were the primary teacher of the Bible. We were the primary teacher of the Bible. We were the primary teacher for the church. We taught day and night. When the brother beats up his wife, we grabbed him and taught him Ephesians and saying, you're in fact beating up your own body. When someone wavered on the completed work of Jesus, we would take them through creation to Christ again and show that, you know, it's Jesus plus nothing. If someone had tried to, if at that time someone tries to slap the label of Wayne, you have been paternalistic, I would gladly say guilty as charged. For a season, I was teaching and preaching. And in turn, I was modeling for the church what a biblical teacher would look like. Now, I don't have time to, to, to share about our teacher's training, how we delegated teaching to the local believers, but, um, but, but they're now um, an indigenous, maturing, independent church um, led by five local elders um, that's um, functioning very well still today. But what I'm trying to say is there was a season where the missionaries taught and model what biblical teaching should look like. And because of that, there is now an ongoing season where the local leadership is serving as faithful shepherds to the church. I want church planting to happen fast, but not at the expense of teaching and preaching. Paul appealed to Timothy in the pastoral letters, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. We need missionaries that will not shy away from the responsibility of teaching and preaching who will model handling the word correctly. The lack of emphasis on teaching in the current go fast, go big method um, should concern all of us. The second weakness of the current trend is the misunderstanding of the role of the Holy Spirit in church planting. It's a misunderstanding of the role of the Holy Spirit in the area of church planting. My first critique on the, mo on the modern mission practice is the absence of teaching. And you might ask, well, wait a minute, are those guys saying they don't need teaching at all? No, they're not saying that. They're not saying that. They, you know, I mean, I mean, no, they still need teaching. Well, the next natural question is, well, where did the teaching come from then? The answer is the teaching comes from the Holy Spirit. The teaching comes from the Holy Spirit. Let me repeat the quote that I read earlier, but, but um, let me just read it first. Do not teach or preach. Instead, facilitate discovery and obedience. When people are simply exposed to the scriptures, God will reveal the truth to them. There's another quote. This is from an agency describing their method. The key to these groups in disciple-making movements is that they don't depend on one leader or clergy. Rather, they focus, they focus on obedience to the word, dependence on prayer and the Holy Spirit, practical love for one another, and the passion to help others to become disciples of Christ. The only source material, the word of God. The only requirements, listen to the Holy Spirit and obey. Okay, listen to the last sentence. The only source material, the word of God. The only requirements, listen to the Holy Spirit and obey. What's missing is the mention of human teachers. In John 16, 
verse 13. Um, this verse is often quoted to support this practice uh, where Jesus said, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Now, I believe with all my heart that we need the Holy Spirit to understand the Bible. The Spirit will indeed guide us to all the truth. But does what Jesus said in John 16 negate the need for human teaching? Do we get to offload the responsibility of teaching to the Holy Spirit? What kind of churches are being planted on the mission field where, where missionaries are told not to teach? And that the Holy Spirit will reveal the truth to the unsaved. Let me read a short testimony published on, a, on another mission agency. This is a U.S.-based agency. It's written by a missionary. Uh, it's told in first person. Let me just read this short testimony for you. The missionary writes, You see, in a discovery Bible study, the Holy Spirit is the teacher. We do not go outside of what the text says, and we allow the student of the Bible to come to their own conclusions as they read and discover what the Bible says. If they have a question, we point them straight back to the text we're reading. Again, this makes for great reproducibility by those who can learn with this method. The mission keeps on going. He says, the first discovery Bible study I did was with these three Chinese students. And after we read through Genesis 1 in the first week, I was feeling good. They sat amazed at the beauty God created and how orderly you operated. They even all shared it with family back in China who also responded well to the story. The discovery Bible study thing was going to work, the missionary said. Week two, we were studying Genesis 3. And I thought things were going well until one of the students spoke up and said, I think the serpent was good in trying to help Adam and Eve gain wisdom and knowledge, which are good things to pursue. Then the missionary said, as the facilitator, I am not supposed to correct. I am supposed to let the Holy Spirit guide. I bit my tongue hard. Then the sweet words of the other students spoke up. I do not think that is right. I think the serpent was deceiving them. Things were good for Adam and Eve before they had the knowledge of good and evil. After, it was bad. I breathed a big sigh of relief and was reminded that the Bible does not need to be explained by those who hold a theology degree but it can be explained from the mouth of one who is hearing it for the first time with God's grace. This is um, the missionary testimony. Now, I am glad that the other students spoke up in that particular passage, serpent, bad. But notice the guiding principle behind how the missionary was leading the Bible study. As the facilitator he is not supposed to correct. I am supposed to let the Holy Spirit guide. And the conclusion was that the Bible does not need to be explained by those who hold a theology degree. This is obviously a false dichotomy between theological training and faithfully teaching God's word. It's not one thing or the other. And notice the missionary further concludes, the Bible can be explained from the mouth of one who is hearing it for the first time with God's grace. In this model, the missionary is no longer the teacher. We have entrusted the teaching of scriptures to an unsaved person because we believe the Holy Spirit is somehow helping or the Holy Spirit is the teacher. The missionary bites his tongue while the unbeliever, the unsaved, explains the scripture to another unsaved person. And guys, do not miss that this model is meant to be reproduced. Unsaved people leading unsaved people. How many times would, would this missionary have to bite his tongue and hope that somehow the unsaved would get the answer right? Guys, we're only in Genesis 3. 
This is not an isolated incident where a missionary decides to get creative. This mode of Bible study is common enough where this, this is an agency publishing their, their work, their practice, their ministry example on their website. They see this as a good thing. I was talking to another missionary a while back using similar methods. And I asked this missionary privately because the mission was describing how a, an unbeliever was leading a Bible study. And I asked the missionary privately, wait a minute, um, you know, can you help me with this? Where in the scriptures do we see the example of an unsaved, unbelieving person leading Bible study? And he looked at me, he looked at me and said, Wayne, don't you believe in the Holy Spirit? Don't you believe God's word have power? Guys, this is not an isolated incident. This is common enough. This is common enough where I would dare to say that this is what a lot of new missionaries, this is the training that they get. Guys, the most important question is this. Do we see this practice in the New Testament? Do we see this practice in, um, in the scriptures? Jesus on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, when the two disciples, when they were walking on the road to Emmaus, they did not understand what just happened in Jesus' death and resurrection. So Jesus appeared, and in verse 27, in Luke 24, 27, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8 so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, the eunuch said, Well, how can I until someone guides me? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scriptures, he told him the good news about Jesus. Guys, again and again and again, we see in the book of Acts, the apostles going to the synagogue, they talked, they persuaded, they debated. They explained the empowerment of the Holy Spirit made them better teachers. But never once did we see them unloading the responsibility of the teaching of teaching to the Holy Spirit. In Acts 20, Paul said to the Ephesian elders, You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. From, where we, from all that we see in the book of Acts, believers and churches are formed by solid teaching. This passive approach, that's not teach, that just facilitates. The Holy Spirit will guide them somehow to the truth. I'm just, I'm just not seeing that um, supported in the scriptures. Guys, if we airdrop nine baseball gloves, some bats, some balls, three bases, a home plate, and probably, you know, let's even throw in an instruction manual. If we drop all those things to 18 boys living in the jungle, no way do they figure out the game of baseball themselves. They, it just won't happen. Coaches who know the game or the, or the profession are appreciated in every field. Why? Because coaches teach. Because they teach. Church planters are supposed to be teachers. We don't get to unload that responsibility to the Holy Spirit. Lastly, after the absence of teaching, the misunderstanding of the role of the Holy Spirit. Lastly, in the current landscape of let's go big and go fast, the issue of discipleship often gets murky. Who is a disciple? How does one become a disciple? At what point in one's understanding do we call a person a follower of Jesus? And if church is a gathering of Jesus' followers... Then if we're murky on the definition of a disciple, then we get murky on the definition of a church. A missiologist um, last year published a paper where he contrasted traditional 
um, mission paradigm with what he called kingdom movement paradigm or another name for church planting movement. And in the area of discipleship, he described the traditional model as convert and then disciple. In the kingdom movement model, he, des he described it as, well, we disciple to conversion. We disciple people to conversion. There's a lot to be said about pre-conversion discipleship, and we don't have time to get into all the final points here. But it is true that, that for many of us, if we were to look back from the moment of a conversion to the days or months or years leading up to it, we would say that we were discipled long before we were saved. And what we usually mean by that is this, that prior to our conversion, we have believing men, women, teachers, pastors, friends in our lives who rub shoulders with us, who modeled Christian character, worldview, who showed us how Christians lived. So while we were still sinners, while we were still unsaved, we were exposed to their way of living. And we might even, be, we might even show interest or even uh, attempt to imitate their life choices or character. And I would say in that sense, um, all cross-cultural missionaries also need to do pre-conversion discipleship. When we move into our location to work uh, with an unreached people group, I could not understand la their language. I did not understand their culture. I lacked the ability to communicate and to teach. But at the same time, the locals, they were all watching us. It was like living in the fishbowl. How my wife and I talked, how I talked to my kids, how fast my kids obey me, how I talked to my coworkers, especially when there's tension, uh, how I treated the local people. How do I offer sacrifices to the spirits when my child gets sick? I mean, they were looking at my choices on a daily basis. So in that sense, I was already showing these unsaved people what a follower of Jesus looked like. In this form of pre-conversion discipleship, living a winsome life, demonstrating Christian character and worldview in my daily choice is necessary so that one day I would have the credibility to stand before those people and share the gospel with them. And it is very possible that during those times, and it happened in our work, that an unsaved person would look at my parenting based on biblical principles, and decides that he too should become a better father. And it is very likely that in major cities, with, with you know, in, out in the mission fields in the city, through mutual friendship and exposure to missionaries, that an unsaved person would look at a missionary and decides that he too needs to be more honest in his business practices. But this is as far as pre-conversion discipleship goes. Because get this, honesty does not save you. Becoming a better father does not get you the imputed righteousness from Jesus. Making life decisions based on Christian character does not make you a Jesus follower. It does not save. There is a place for pre-conversion discipleship modeling the life of a disciple. But when we say our methodology is to disciple people to conversion, we have to be very careful in when we declare someone when he has become a disciple of Jesus. Because we need to know true discipleship, a saved believer through faith in Jesus, growing and becoming more Christ-like, cannot possibly happen before conversion. In Romans 8, 7, the natural person's mind is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. The primary discipleship method for church planting movements, it's what's called obedience-based discipleship, or OBD. Obedience-based discipleship. And he contends that, quote, 
Obedience is the mark of true discipleship. And it is true that, that faith without works or faith without obedience is dead. But in the obedience discipleship, in the obedience-based discipleship model, it sets up a false dichotomy between knowledge and obedience. Another quote, in some Christian ministry, we assess how mature a believer is based on how much he knows. But the New Testament assesses the maturity of a believer based on how much he obeys. It sounds good, but there, there was never meant to be a dichotomy between knowledge and obedience. It was never meant to be a dichotomy. In the current transmissionary practice, the emphasis is, put, is placed on rapid reproduction and in, and, and in starting movements in its instruction to missionaries how to lead a Bible study based on the obedience-based discipleship model, missionaries are instructed to, quote, to give enough Bible content to obey and pass on. You don't want to give them so much that they can't obey. Missionaries are trained to ask three simple questions, and I quote, what is the passage saying? What shall we obey from this passage? Who is someone that could share this passage with? And guys, at all these times, missionaries are instructed not to teach. Well, what happens when you run out of time in a Bible study? The instruction is to cut the lesson in half and quote, you're just trying to give them enough to obey. Guys, I'm not against obedience, but there's a whole lot more Bible truth. They are, they are meant to be believed rather than to be obeyed. In Ephesians 2, 4 to 5, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. Ephesians 2, verse 4 to 5. You cannot possibly get a life application out of that passage, but without understanding it, without understanding it, you are not a follower of Jesus. Guys, allow me to lob some questions from this side of the ocean back to you guys in the West. What is the rush to produce obedience when we are still unsaved? What is the rush to declare someone to bestow the title of a Jesus follower or disciple before we fully understand the gospel? Guys, when we put so much emphasis on obedience in those scriptures that can be applied to our daily lives, we inadvertently de-emphasize scriptures that need to be wrestled with and understood and believed in. Guys, in the New Testament, the only obedience ever required of an unbeliever is to repent and believe. Is to repent and believe. The people group that we work with, man, they had no word for forgiveness. They had no word for grace. In order to understand Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, we had to explain what transgression was, what grace was. They not only needed the Holy Spirit, they needed a Holy Spirit-empowered teacher to take them through what God's Word means. Guys, when we use the model obedience-based discipleship with the goal of discipling people to conversion, we run a major risk of giving the nations a, God, a gospel that is based on works, which is no gospel at all. When we declare someone who, when we declare someone has become a disciple because he is somehow showing obedience in Christian character, this danger cannot be understated. We are in fact, if we do this, we're in fact telling people that they are saved and made right with God while they're still going to hell. And when we start counting every one of these Bible studies and gatherings without a teacher as a church, we are, in fact, robbing Jesus of the beautiful bride that he longs to see. Guys, a missionary that teaches nothing 
an obedience-based, moralistic teaching that saves nothing begets a so-called church that stands on nothing. A missionary that teaches nothing, a moralistic obedience that saves nothing, produces a church that stands on nothing. The current missionary practice is heavily influenced by pragmatism. As long as we could show number and growth, then it must be right. But growth is not always good. Just ask an oncologist. Healthy cells grow, but cancer cells grow as well. The three weaknesses that I see in modern practice, missionary practice, first, the absence of teaching from the missionaries and the, the, the practice of discouraging the missionaries from teaching. Number two, the misunderstanding of the role of the Holy Spirit. We don't get to offload and load our responsibility to the Holy Spirit. Number three is the weak or murky definition of who a disciple is. To my brothers and sisters in the West, this is my plea to you. When you come to our side of the ocean, seek first to be faithful stewards and teachers of God's word. Leave the expectations of speed and movements at home. Come and patiently endure the long years of learning our language. I know it's hard, but it is necessary for us to understand the gospel in our own language and courageously teach the whole counsel of God. And once we're convicted of our sinfulness and fall in love with the gospel of grace, stay a little longer and do church with us until we catch that vision of maturing and multiplying and eventually joining the great commission call with you. And then you can go. And then you could go home. And guys, no, we don't want, we don't want colonial-style missionaries where forever paternalist, you know, who are forever paternalistic. But we need gospel workers who are not, who are not afraid to teach, lead, correct, or even rebuke and say, as the Apostle Paul once said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We need those kind of missionaries. Finally, I have two parting thoughts or remarks to missionaries and then to pastors. To my fellow missionaries, I know perhaps I'm speaking to a whole generation of missionaries who, who you know, have been trained in some of these modern methods. And I know the examples that I describe in my session are somewhat anecdotal in nature and perhaps very different from what you actually do on the mission field. It's very likely that in the last 40 minutes, as I was, as I was speaking up here, where were you going? Wait a minute, that's not how we do DMM. Well, wait a minute. No, we don't shy away from teaching. And you would be right. Um, but in this setting, I have to limit my response to the major voices that's impacting the current mission trend today. At the same time, all the missionaries that I met, they, you know, when, when asked about these methods, uh, all of them tell me, well, we don't, we don't do it like that. We, we always, we modify this part. Well, we change it up over there. Now, everybody says that. But allow me to ask you this. Why do you keep on using something that needs constant modification? Perhaps it's time, not just for um, modification, but for new construction or for reconstruction. Guys, I appreciate the heart, the urgency to share the gospel, the commitment not to commit the colonial uh, mission, you know, colonial style missionary mistakes. You know, I, I appreciate the emphasis on indigenous reproduction. They're, these are the good things about the disciple-making movements. Is there room, though, I'm at, I ask, to keep all these good things, but to rid ourselves 
of the glaring weaknesses that we see in other areas. Is it possible to even to shed the label of, of I'm a practitioner of this such and such method? Can we do a reconstruction again for the sake of the nations? In order to reach the unreached, we need you, the missionaries of this generation, to examine and put in practice again what we see in the scriptures, to teach and to correct and to protect the wonderful gift of salvation, of Holy Spirit, of discipleship, and finally, the church. And to pastors, especially pastors from sending churches, God has entrusted the call to mission, not to individuals, but to the local church. It was a church in Antioch that sent out Paul and Barnabas. The church or churches that your missionaries plant out on the mission field is an extension of your response to the Great Commission. Therefore, your missionaries, what they teach overseas on salvation needs to be consistent with what you teach on the Sunday pulpit every week. Who they declare a disciple of Jesus Christ on the other side of the ocean need to be the same person, same follower, same kind of person that you would call a disciple in your home with proper contextualization, of course. Their teaching on the Holy Spirit need to reflect your teaching on the Holy Spirit. Please do not just send your missionary off with a monthly check and call it good. Choose agencies with your missionaries, ones that will best reflect your missiology, your understanding of the Holy Spirit, your understanding of the church. When your missionaries come back, be nice to them, welcome them. Encourage them because, it, you know, frontier, mission, frontier missions is hard. But do take the time to sit down and ask them about their methodologies in order to finish the task Jesus entrusted us with. We need the local churches. We need you, the pastor, to be involved and lead and correct some of these weaknesses we're seeing in current mission landscape. Guys, thank you for your time. Uh, this is the end of my session. My prayer is that we will all be found faithful on that day when we get to see Jesus again.